Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, in what is being reported as an abrupt or surprise development, Democratic Senator Joe Manchin, whose shtick relied heavily on legislative roadblocking, has agreed to sign on to a package including some $369 billion for climate and energy proposals. The New York Times reports that the deal represents the most ambitious climate action ever taken by Congress, a statement that cries out for context. The package is hundreds of pages long, and folks are only just going through it as we record on July 28th. But already some are suggesting we not allow an evident welcome break in Beltway inertia to lead to uncritical cheering for policy that may not, in fact, do what is necessary to check climate disruption, in part because it provides insufficient checks on fossil fuel production. But journalistic context doesn't just mean comparing policy responses to real-world needs. It means recognizing and reporting how the impacts of the climate crisis, like heat waves, differ depending on who we are and where we live. There's a way to tell the story that connects to policy and planning, but that centers human beings. We talked about that during last year's heat wave with Portland State University professor Vivek Shandas. We'll hear part of that conversation today. Also on the show, although it's taken a media backseat to other scourges, the U.S. reality of black people being killed by law enforcement, their families and communities' grief and outrage meeting no meaningful response, grinds on. Robert Langley in South Carolina, Roderick Brooks in Texas, Jaylind Walker in Ohio. Major news media show little interest in lifting up non-punitive community responses or in demanding action from lawmakers. So comfortable are they with state-sanctioned racist murder, the corporate press corps haven't troubled to highlight the connections between outrages and the system failure they betray. Exhibit A. Beltway Media have twisted their pearls about the U.S. Secret Service having deleted text messages relevant to the January 6th investigation. No one seems to be buying the claim from Secret Service spokesperson Anthony Guglielmi that the messages were erased as part of a device replacement program that just happened to take place after the inspector general's office had requested them. Now, many people but none in the corporate press would think it relevant to point out that Guglielmi came to the Secret Service after his stint with the Chicago Police Department, during which he presided over that department's lying about the 2014 police killing of Laquan McDonald. There, Guglielmi claimed that missing audio from five different police dash cam videos, audio that upended police's story that McDonald had been lunging toward Officer Jason Van Dyke, when in fact he'd been walking away, had disappeared due to software issues or operator error. 
As noted by Media Matters' Matt Gertz, Chicago reporters following up on the story discovered that CPD dash cam videos habitually lacked audio. Guglielmi himself acknowledged that more than 80 percent of the cameras have non-functioning audio due to operator error or, in some cases, intentional destruction, as reported by the Chicago Sun-Times. A dry-eyed observer might conclude that Guglielmi was hired, was elevated to the Secret Service, not despite but because of his vigorous efforts to mislead the public and lawmakers about reprehensible law enforcement behavior. But I think it's not quite right to think that this means the elite press corps aren't sufficiently interested in Anthony Guglielmi. The point is that they aren't sufficiently interested in Laquan McDonald. Counterspin talked about the case with an important figure in it, writer and activist Jamie Calvin, back in 2015, and we'll hear some of that conversation today on Counterspin. Counterspin is brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. As heat waves rock the U.S. and France and Spain and China and India, one wonders just how long media outlets will continue roping off the urgency of climate disruption from coverage of extreme weather events or from coverage of energy policy. A June New York Times story noted that President Biden could do more to increase domestic oil and gas production by opening up more federal lands and waters to oil drilling in places like Alaska and the Gulf of Mexico. But the paper's Clifford Krauss cautioned, quote, even those initiatives, which environmentalists and many Democrats oppose, because they would retard efforts to combat climate change, would have little immediate impact, close quote. You see that? The end of human life on the planet. A page one story some days is here the parenthetical partisan concern of environmentalists and some Democrats. Something has to change, and it could start with reporters talking to people outside the Beltway whose investment in climate policy is that it could mean their life or death. We talked last July with Vivek Shandas, professor at Portland State University, who focuses on the implication of climate change in cities. Often what we're hearing about the climate change is this global phenomenon. And so I want to just start with that idea in that we have now going back to the 1950s. In fact, there were oil company scientists who were convinced in the 1950s that the emission of these massive amounts of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases would lead to a potential forcing of and destabilizing of the climate system as a whole. And that's now over you know, half a century established science that's been growing over time. And we had some real interest in this kind of global phenomenon. And so where the conversation is increasingly going and where we're trying to move this is to get it down into much more of an everyday experience of something that communities need to be far more prepared for and far more safeguarded from. And that takes place at our local neighborhoods, at our streets, in our cities as a whole. And so the conversation is starting to move in that direction. And while we're talking about the kind of increasing precision of the science that's emerging, we're also starting to see 
at this very localized level, the pernicious effects of what happens when a climate and a planetary system does become dysfunctional from what we've known it from millennia in the past. And so part of what we're seeing now is this ability to describe in incredible detail how an individual street, how a city block, how a neighborhood really feels some of these most acute effects of, for example, a heat wave that's just come through my city of Portland, Oregon, and who are the people who are most affected by these heat waves. And we've been able to chalk this up to a variety of different factors, namely factors that related to race-based planning and segregation efforts that took place almost a century ago that are coming home to roost today. And that's what we're starting to see these disproportionate impacts around. Well, let's talk a little bit in detail about that, because I, I understand that you've been able to find actual temperature variations between neighborhoods, yeah? Right. So generally, when we talk about the weather we see on the news or in newspapers or radio, we hear about, you know, the high that's going to befall a city or region. And sometimes we get a little bit of variation across cities within a metro region. So what that essentially does is it creates this kind of one temperature for an entire city. And what that also suggests is that Mother Nature is throwing this thing at us, and we really have no agency. We have nothing we can do about it. Though when we get into these specific measurements and descriptions of differences by neighborhood, we're then able to see that the actions where we've taken in past planning and design can be directly attributable to the experiences that communities and infrastructure and ecosystems have at the local level. And so when we start seeing those differences, what that suddenly suggests is that we have some agency, we have some control over what our everyday experience is like when it comes to these heat waves, flooding events, various forms of climate-induced impacts as they fall upon our cities as a whole. So what we've been able to find is that cities vary by upwards of 15, sometimes 20 degrees Fahrenheit. In fact, the heat wave that came through the Pacific Northwest during the heat wave I was really lucky and fortunate to have some very sensitive temperature and humidity measurements that I was able to go out and collect around the region and found that while the news media was saying, you know, it was 115 on Sunday, I was able to go out and actually clock neighborhoods at about 124 Fahrenheit with these sensitive thermometers. I even went by a few houseless encampments that were along a busy street, and I was able to use a little infrared camera to take photos of various tents that were set up. And I could see silhouettes inside the tent, so I knew there were people inside. And I noticed that these tents were coming in at about 135 Fahrenheit. Wow. And that's lethal when you're talking about communities that are completely exposed to this kind of heat coming through and very limited preparation or outreach that I noticed was happening in and around the region. Right. And so you're talking about things like, hey, if you're in an affluent neighborhood, you probably have more trees, and that is a material difference in terms of how you're going to experience a heat wave. Yes, trees are often the first go-to because they are incredibly efficient in their ability to draw water up from the deep soil, transpire it out their leaves, change the humidity around the local environment, provide that shade. All of these things help cool that local environment. And yes, wealthier communities have 
been designed to have more trees because of a variety of racial covenants and redlining policies that were promulgated 80 to 100 years ago that still maintain their fingerprint or their kind of echo today. And so what we're seeing is that these trees directly do help, though what we're also seeing is that the amount of space for being able to get trees into the ground is much larger in wealthier, often whiter neighborhoods, meaning racially whiter neighborhoods of cities, whereas lower income communities of color, often black, Latino, indigenous communities living in cities, due to historic segregation policies are living in places that have far less space for trees, let alone all the other potential factors that lead to the amplification of heat waves. Well, we know that Public policy relies on public opinion, and opinion relies on experience. So there's a real relationship between thinking, well, you know, that heat wave was bad, but it wasn't so bad for me. Or, you know, well, I don't live on a coastline or whatever, you know. And also people have things on their mind. They may have lost their job. Their kid might be sick. How do we work on engaging people in a incredible problem that might still be abstract for them based on this just differential impact. It's interesting, specifically in the Pacific Northwest, where a lot of the houses don't, even middle-income, higher-income homes, don't have a history of having air conditioning. And so what's particularly uh, noticeable for me in this particular event of a 115-plus degree heat wave coming through is that there were a number of people who often don't step up and show up for those uh, conversations about inequity actually coming up and saying, hey, this is really hot. We are not well prepared. And I was hearing a lot of that over the last few days in the Pacific Northwest. Um, though to get to your point more directly, I think the idea of public opinion of folks who may not be necessarily directly engaged with the conversation, one of the most important Parts of this is for us showing evidence about what is it that's happening in and around a region. We have been very ambitious in going out and engaging communities that are often at the front line of the heat waves, those who are working outside, working through community-based organizations, to go out and collect evidence around what are we seeing? Often this is the invisible side of things. We don't see the differential effects because we are not directly experiencing it. Though so I am able to show you that your block, which is just a couple of blocks away from another neighborhood, is actually 15 degrees cooler in terms of temperature than just a neighbor, a walk's distance away. Right. And so when I can start, when, when I or we can start describing these differences, in what the experience is, we can start to really have conversations about why those patterns exist, what may have led to them, and ultimately engaging in those conversations could lead to actions that would allow communities to then um, change public opinion about where we prioritize resources, how we center historically marginalized communities in reducing the impacts of heat waves, which, as we know, kill more people than all other natural disasters. And so that's something that we really kind of ground ourselves in is this evidence and descriptions of what is happening just outside of our houses, just within our neighborhoods and across our whole city. 
We've been speaking with Vivek Shandas, professor at Portland State University. Vivek Shandas, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Sure, my pleasure. Thanks for your interest in this topic. That was Professor Vivek Shandas speaking with Counterspin in July of 2021. U.S. Secret Service spokesperson Anthony Guglielmi is in what passes for hot water for his hard-to-believe explanation that text messages from the agency relevant to the January 6th insurrection have been oopsie-daisy permanently deleted. While it's outrageous to many, the pretense, the barely-veiled contempt for the concerns, is especially insulting to black people and others who've been seeing this obfuscatory behavior time and again from law enforcement, including, what's that? Anthony Guglielmi, in his role as spokesperson for the Chicago Police Department when they actively covered up the 2014 murder of Laquan McDonald. Counterspin spoke in December of 2015 with Chicago writer and human rights activist Jamie Calvin working with the group Invisible Institute. He talked about the work that was necessary to unveil the story law enforcement tried to hide. The media is part of the same machinery as the police department's false narrative about individual instances like the Laquan McDonald case and larger macro narrative about the state of the city. And so you know, part of what is, I think, getting lost right now, and understandably given the extreme and egregious nature of what I think can only be called the execution of Laquan McDonald, is that this is not a huge departure from the norm. I mean, this is the norm. So on October 20th of last year, the police-involved shooting, so-called, of a black teenager on the southwest side was treated by the media on the basis of information solely provided by the police department and a spokesperson for the Fraternal Order of Police, the police union, as a kind of routine story of officer self-defense. A young man with a knife lunges at officers, shot in the chest, dies sometime later. Completely uncritical response, a police shooting almost invariably, about 80-85% of the time, of an African-American. That's a story that recurs between 40 and 50 times a year in Chicago. We as journalists do not, unless there are exceptional circumstances, dig into the story to you know, do the hard work on the scene, in the neighborhood, to find out what happened. To this day, even in this post-Ferguson era, the tendency is just to publish the police blotter. I don't want to exclude myself from that indictment of the press. I was brought to this story not by my own hunch or insight or intuition about what had happened here, but by a whistleblower who reached out to a colleague of mine, Craig Futterman, civil rights lawyer, and myself with a tip a couple of weeks after the shooting to the effect that the facts were sharply at variance with the official account that there was video And he was in a position close enough to the investigation to say that he was concerned that this was not going to be vigorously investigated. Well, walk us through some of the journalistic work involved here. Among the things that the whistleblower provided was enough information that I was able to track down a civilian witness to the shooting. He was not happy to have me appear on his doorstep. He was really worried about the possibility of police retaliation. 
And he told me then, ultimately in great detail, and he was extremely credible, what he saw. He was a motorist. His passage had been blocked by this unfolding event. He had had an unobstructed view of the shooting. He gave a really vivid and powerful account that ultimately completely aligns with the video we've now seen. I've spoken with another witness as well. You know, and these are grown men and formidable individuals who, because of what they'd seen, to witness the execution of a young man by the police in the course of their day was such a break with reality, you know, such a break with the expectations about reality that they came away feeling like anything's possible. Right. You know, if, if the state can do this, anything's possible. So the fear in the witnesses was one of the really striking, and it continues to this day, really striking things about it. I was able to learn through a high official in Cook County who reached out on my behalf to the medical examiner. I was able to learn in, in January the content of the autopsy. Autopsies take several months before they are subject to Freedom of Information Act, you know, are finalized and can be FOIA'd. And so I knew in advance of being able to get the document what it would contain. And then when I got it, I was able to publish a detailed account, which I published in Slate. And this was, you know, so radically in, inconsistent with the police account that Laquan McDonald had been shot 16 times and the bullets had entered front and back. So that was the next kind of pivotal point. You know, there are a couple of frames around this story. Everybody's asked, how can the city wait so long and hold this information back? And it's important to recognize that everything we know now was known by the police department and at the highest levels of the city within hours of the shooting. They had both police and civilian witnesses. They had the videotape. The autopsy was performed the next morning. You know, they had all this information. They were also operating, it seems clear now, within two broad frames. One was autumn 2014. Ferguson is, you know, in virtual uprising. The mayor and the police superintendent of a city like Chicago, what's the worst possible thing that could happen? You know, it would be outrageous and utterly unjustified fatal shooting of a black teenager by a police officer. The other broad context and frame was the mayor was running for re-election. So at various points, I think decisions were made. I don't know precisely what they were, but in relation to this, we have to get through the election cycle while containing this case. In the 48 hours before I I published about the autopsy in Slate, I tried to get a comment from the department. I called the news office repeatedly. I, you know, sent emails. The news guy um, had always just left his desk. He was going to call me back. And I never heard. I couldn't even get a no comment. The piece of Slate appeared at 8-something at night beyond the end of the workday. The FOIA that my colleagues submitted uh, revealed that within, I think, 12 or 13 minutes after it was posted, the full text of the article was in the email box of the mayor's entire senior staff. So they were hyper, hyper vigilant about anything written about this case. Okay. Then the other critical point in the narrative is in late February, lawyers representing the family of Laquan McDonald in a kind of unexpected development through the probate process. They had to establish the estate of Laquan McDonald in order to represent the family. 
turns out probate provides subpoena powers. Mm-hmm. So they were able to subpoena the city for records uh, related to the death of Laquan McDonald, and through that process got a copy of the video, at which point, and this is within weeks of the mayor's runoff election, with the video in hand, not yet having actually filed a lawsuit. You know, they were preparing a wrongful death suit, but they hadn't yet filed. They reached out to the city law department, said, we have to talk. And fairly quickly, we were able to negotiate a $5 million settlement, you know, for the benefit of the family, but conditioned on not releasing the video. A lot of different things have entered into you know, Ferguson concerns, the mayor's reelection, but also I think just the culture of how the police department responds. And I've said this repeatedly in recent weeks that what's really striking, if you look at just all the different acts, including officers at the scene and then how the investigative process was handled at every stage and at every level of the police department and the city in response to this utterly appalling incident, the impulse, the default, just the cultural reflex was to circle the wagons and to double down on what they absolutely had to know was a false narrative. So, you know, there's a lot of talk in Chicago now about conspiracy and cover-up, and I think those words have their place, but I think they're also misleading, and I think what we're confronting is something in some ways more disturbing, which is the culture. You know, we talk about the code of silence, which is one of those really resonant phrases, and it's very evocative because there is, in fact, a kind of coerced silence of police officers who witness abuses but are intimidated into silence by fear of retaliation. And I think there's also silence of victims who know they won't be believed and and won't be taken seriously. So the, the term makes some sense, but there's another sense in which it's really inapt because what something like Laquan McDonald incident reflects, and I think it's an instance of a much, much broader phenomena, is an absolute fierce effort to maintain narrative control. Right. So the code of silence is a tool in the service of narrative control. And to come back to the press, that I think is where we have not been as effective as we might be in penetrating and piercing that dynamic. And it's critical to do so. I mean, how many other Laquan McDonald's are there? That was writer and activist Jamie Calvin speaking with Counterspin in December of 2015. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. For more information about FAIR, you can check out our website, fair.org. The show's engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.